All right. Jack, I'm in good mood today, man. I'm so glad to hear that, brother. So am I. <laughs> I'm happy just to see your smiling mug, dude. Yeah. I'm back at you. It's good. Feeling feeling refreshed today. I'm going to charge at it. The trilogy. Hell spat the SEC guidance back out. Sweetness. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the new SEC guidance that just came out. SEC is proposing rules for cybersecurity as it relates to public companies, proposing rules and amendments to enhance and standardize disclosures regarding cybersecurity, risk management strategy, governance, and incident reporting by public companies that are subject to the reporting requirements of the Security Exchange Act of 1934. So specifically, this proposal would require reporting about material cybersecurity incidents you have to file a form 8K, so that's new. Uh, would have to require periodic disclosures among a bunch of things, but including uh, registrants, policies, and procedures to manage risk, management's role in implementing cybersecurity policy and procedures, documentation about board of directors' cybersecurity expertise, and then updates about previously reported and material cybersecurity incidents. And all disclosures need to be in the correct format. How do you feel about that track? ASCII. It must has to be an ASCII. <laughs> the, the exact word, yeah, it's, it's ultimately ASCII. The exact <laughs> words are inline extensible business reporting language. So for those who are a registrant and are versed in filing your 8K, you now get to format your cybersecurity goodness in inline XBRL. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So, you know, just off, off the top, nice that we're starting to see it, right? Some of us for years have suggested that the only way to get people to start taking cybersecurity more seriously was to treat it like a more standard part of business best practice. So sort of heads up, hands up, well done, glad to see it exists. Unfortunately, I think some of the immediate dive into implementation detail that's been recommended by the SEC in this rule is misguided, particularly because we don't yet have a shared understanding right, of what material means. I think that's sort of like a top level kind of question. And maybe more significantly for me, Justin, and you had forwarded me along an article, I think it was from Forbes of Fortune, uh, that talked about the inclusion of the cybersecurity expert on board at the board level. And as we've talked about many times in the, in the podcast, and as I think most people who listen to us have probably seen in their own world, a lot of times the person who has found their way into the CISO role isn't necessarily someone who will communicate naturally or authentically at a board level, right? And so I, I'm not sure if this is better or worse than not having that person present at the board. I think it's great that the board is going to be forced to think about cybersecurity, but I'm not sure if the construct of dragging the CISO up to the boardroom for tea is probably the best way to get home from here. It's um, it's not. <laughs> well, hang on, I get. I, shoot, I have to. I have to qualify it a little bit. You know, I kind of reversed the clocks a little bit, and there was a point in time where the the board of directors were required to have an elevated level of financial literacy and mm-hmm. be able to demonstrate that elevated level of of understanding, so that they could provide better governance and advice to the companies that they serve. And, you know, kind of reversing the clocks, like that process was painful. And uh, most of the board of directors that I know, while 
they might have some financial literacy, being able to digest entire financial statements in the context behind it that could be paired with that elevated financial view. It's hard to kind of put that together and have a meaningful opinion and meaningful advice about company direction. Because I mean, for most of these board of directors, whether it's financial or cyber, you know, in between board meetings, they're not doing an awful lot. They're not mm -hmm. involved on a, you know, day-to-day -day basis with the company. They're missing all of the context. And really when it comes down to their role is to meet quarterly or whatever the frequency is, be available for the executive management team should they have kind of ad hoc looking for directions that exist between quarter over quarter. But their role effectively is in that quarter is they're kind of taking executive management's word for best recommendation on action. And, you know, the board is kind of asking questions and it's kind of this scenario of a nose in, fingers out type of thing, right? Like they're you're, they're putting in their nose just enough to ask the hard questions and making sure that everything's been thought through. But for the most part, like they're not there to change the course of strategy. They're there to support the executive management team that has been put in place in that company. And whether we're talking about you know financial guidance, we're talking about cyber guidance, it's, it's going to be the same thing. And the issue that I see with this amendment or the the proposed rules that have been put out is they're super high level. There's no real specificity to them. And in the absence of any specificity and material like guidance, some something tangible that you can kind of dig into, it's going to be rife with conflict. The the word I immediately pick up on in here is material, right? And mm -hmm. If you're in executive management or you're a board, whether you feel like a breach should or shouldn't be disclosed, you can split hairs on materiality all day long to justify whether you should or shouldn't report it. And, you know, the, the really crappy thing about all of this is it's going to put additional pressure on someone in a security leadership position because those individuals have been those those individuals, meaning security leaders, have been put into those positions within a business to be in charge, in charge with the security of the company. And that includes not the security of the company, but all of the disclosures, all of the breach notifications, everything that kind of comes with that role. And when you get into the position where you're starting to argue materiality with someone who's been put in charge, in charged with um, the security of a company, you know, speaking for most security executives that I know, to ignore that or argue against materiality, which if they believe it is a material event, you're trying to argue against it, you start to marginalize what they do as their job, which becomes not only a stressful situation for most security professionals I know. It's not one that they would really choose to be in because the question that's ultimately going to be asked at the end of the day is saying, if we're just going to split hairs on materiality, why am I even here? Because people are going to do what they want to do anyway. Yeah, I think you your your point of their sense of visibility, their perspective on materiality is a huge one, right? Ordinarily, the job of the cybersecurity executive is so busy, right? Trying to figure out how to support the business needs, how to address incoming concerns, how to react to changes in threat intelligence or threat surface, all of that. Uh, they're really pretty busy. 
they probably have very little insight into the financial position of the company at a detailed level or the role of transaction processing A versus B, which may have security impact, et cetera. And so asking them to contextualize the security information it'll bring to the board to understand its materiality, it may be a bridge too far, right? And that's also just not the skill set that they're born to have, right? They tend to be, you know, even if they're great um, strategy folks, they'll, they'll be great at strategizing good security ways forward. They're typically not in the position of understanding enough about the business, uh, implications of sales, market development, business development, partnerships, M&A, all that. So as to be able to fully understand whether or not the recommendations they're making to the board from a cybersecurity perspective are appropriate. And, you know, we're, right now we're having this discussion, and I think perhaps a lot of our listeners as well, you're thinking board of directors, right? And you're thinking, dun, 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 you know, big marble building and stuff. But remember, there's a lot of public companies that aren't massive. Right. There are a lot of companies that are, that are going to be having publicly traded equity that the SEC is creating these rules around for things like the 8K. And it's not like that. Right. These are busy folks running mid-sized companies, maybe. Right. These are boards of directors who, to your point, are disengaged aside from, you know, the 90 minutes before and the 90 minutes after the board meeting, you know, more or less. And they're going to land. And that CISO is going to be both responsible for promoting what's going on. And the board's going to be responsible for understanding it well enough to make the right decision. So I, I think that it's good, right, to be suggesting that there be cybersecurity reporting uh, at the board level. And what I mean by that is um, there's a materiality analysis that uh, organizations can provide in terms of the way they report on this and whether things are material or not. So I think that's an interesting thing to have published. I think that incidents, which according to that formula, whatever it is, show themselves to be material, should be reported. I think that's really very good. I think that understanding the way that the company is investing in cybersecurity, right? Perhaps coming up with a rubric for what is the appropriate level of investment in security, not with a number, but with areas of better security. I think that's interesting, right? But I think that saying we're going to put a body in there who may not be well-trained or have the context or experience necessary to really perform as a peer at the board level, that's not so great. Forcing uh, within four days a definition of whether an incident is material or not, when we know that sometimes incidents post-discovery, it takes a while to figure out how bad they've been. I think it may set some unreasonable expectations in terms of timing. So I'm glad that the visibility is there. I think, you know, if you read through the document, read through some of the footnotes, you know, you find out that there, there are multiple ways to blunt this a little bit, which may, be, which may be a good thing, right? So at least the conversation's coming up there. But in general, I'm not sure that this very specific bit of regulation and rule, when it becomes effective, I think probably it's it's been on for 30 about, so probably another 30 days. It makes me feel good. It's got good virtue signaling written all over it, right? We care about cybersecurity. It's at the board level now. But I think that as we saw with like Sarbanes-Oxley, sometimes the, the implementation and the actual effect of these well-intentioned rules can be kind of painful for the folks who are responsible for implementing them. Yeah. Let me come back to something that you said earlier about, um, you know, th these individuals not having the full picture, I meaning like the cybersecurity leaders not having the full business picture and all the context that kind of comes with the business, right? And all of these other things that the board of directors is seeing that, you know, security leaders might not. And it's important to acknowledge that. And I think for a lot of security professionals that I know it's, especially leaders, it's always, there, there's always this like underpinning need, this ongoing desire need to be able to report higher and get the message up higher and be able to shout from like a higher mountaintop 
And, you know, I hear people all the time saying, you know, oh, security should report to the CEO or the security should report to like the next level up or security should report into the board. But the truth of the matter is like the business leaders reporting into that level have additional context that security leaders just don't see. Like you said, like sales plans, uh, other marketing plans, business expansion plans. These people don't don't have all of that added context to make them the best um, the best decision maker, best advisor that that I think they could be. And I think in the absence of that, you're really starting to set someone up for failure when you intersect them with someone with a broader view, like, like the board of directors, right? Because the issue that I think is going to ultimately exist is saying without having a security leader go in to report to the board of directors, make recommendations based on a partial view of the business will put the board of directors and the executive management team into an unfair position in a position where they are constantly having to justify why they don't follow security advice. And specifically what I mean by that is like, if you have a security leader who goes in, makes a security recommendation into the board of directors, now the board of directors and executive management has been made aware of it. And if they don't follow it and something happens for whatever reason, the question of negligence starts to come to the surface, right? Of saying, if someone were to, someone outside comes back and looks at the recommendation and said, hey, this recommendation was made, why didn't you follow it? And the argument that ultimately gets made in this situation is based on the entire context of the business, based on multiple variables, shareholder pressures, whatever, this cyber risk was deprioritized because of other things that were more important, right? But in the world of defense and defending, we have to get it right 100% of the time. An attacker only has to get it right once. So in the world of like board of directors trying to ascertain and measure risk, there's a lot of things that they have to weigh out against each other. And, and unfortunately, you know, cyber risks just aren't at the top. There's a whole list of other perhaps more important business priorities that, that need attention and dollars more than security events do. Yeah. And, and if we look at the way in which they're going to perform that rationalization, let's look at other types of risks they insure against, right? Fire, flood you know, natural disaster, whatever. If you look back through the, the broad sweep of history, right, there's a calculus for generating what is negligence and what is not, right? And I think we're going to start seeing that potentially getting applied here. And it's, again, it's where the rubber's going to hit the road and that leading security exec inside the company who's not reporting to the board is going to have a really, really hard task in front of them. So, you know, Judge Learned Hand, the best jurist ever not to serve as the Supreme Court here in the United States, created this idea that if the cost of prevention is less than the product of the costs of prevention times the likelihood of the damage, then you are negligent if you don't do it, right? So if you come up with a recommendation from that security person who's not at the board and they said, listen, we got to go do X and it's going to cost us X. And the board says, well, why is that? And they'll say, well, because the damage could be this much. And that's like 10X. Like, oh, well, that's really quite bad. So I can understand what you're saying. What's the likelihood it's going to happen? Because if it's one out of 10, it's kind of a wash, right? It's a, it's a jump ball. If it's one out of 20, then we really shouldn't do anything. If it's one out of five, well, we're definitely doing it, right? But the, you go to a security person, you say, hey, dude, what's the likelihood of ransomware in our organization? It's like, I don't know. And, and if it spreads, how bad is it going to be? Well, I, I don't really know. And so when you're trying to ask him to make that balanced decision, right, that says, does judge learned hand coming from the cloud is going to come down and say, dude, so negligent, not going to happen, right? Because the security person 
when asked, will not be able to describe the likelihood at any level of detail that creates a balance mechanism for understanding what things should cost. One other thing, right, that, that makes me a little uncomfortable with this structure is that if we put the CISO in the position of reporting to the board on what should be done next, they are, in my experience, the only unenlightened self-interest that'll be appearing before the board. As an example, salesperson goes in and they're mainly like, hey, did you sell stuff? And they're like, yeah, we sold some stuff. I'd like some more money to sell some more stuff. And they say, okay, well, if you do that, will, the, will you sell more stuff? Yeah, I have to, or I'm going to get fired. Okay, understood. Or the finance person goes in and she says, hey, listen, I'm running all the finance here. I need some more stuff for some more people. And so, okay, this is the reason why. Here's the benefit. Great. But it's not for them, right? It's not for their power base. It's not for them to be this or that. It's for them to generate an appreciable result that the board can measure and hold them to. CISO goes in and says, hey, you know what we really need? We really need Harvey Dent. We need Harvey <laughs> Dent here right now, right? And, and we need to implement it everywhere and it's going to cost us X dollars. And the board says, well, what's the benefit? And they're like, but it's Harvey. It's going to protect everyone from everything. And, it, and they say we should do this. And they're like, well, what's the, how do we measure you? Like, I'll get it done. Okay, so you get it done. What's the benefit? Well, I don't know, right? And you can imagine a really well-intentioned but unenlightened security exec who's never been put in this kind of position before, never talked to these kind of people before saying, we really have to do this because I'm very worried. And making that case without that additional context, right? Without understanding how to make that balancing argument. And I think it's going to be, this is definitely one of those, be careful what you wish for kinds of questions. <laughs> I'm certain there are accountants everywhere who when Sarbanes-Oxley rolled out after all the financial scandals were like, Woohoo! Great to be an accountant today. There's a first. It's excellent. Now we've got Sarbanes Oxley. That's a lot more stuff to do. And then it started happening. Like, oh man, this is terrible. I'm I'm shoveling sand. I'm shoveling sand to the beach. This is not fun, right? A lot of work. <laughs> and I think security people who will be excited, rightfully so, that we're seeing an elevated elevated level of visibility of cybersecurity at the board, and we're having this conversation. I think they're going to think that's great. But when the rubber hits the road, man, this is this is going to cause a real problem because we don't have a shared lexicon. We don't have a shared language between the security team, the business team, and the boards that are responsible for regulating them. So, you know, it, I, I'm glad they're talking about it. I think there's going to be a lot of wiggle room in the middle because it can't really be done what they're asking for. And I think if it is parochially administrated, this is going to cause havoc. Yeah. The Sarbanes intersections. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting one. I um this is this is probably probably the last thing I have to say on the topic. But um when you do reverse the clocks, look back at you know the history of Sarbanes, where we started, where where we are today. Um, I would speculate uh, there's going to be a mirror in what we're going to see today, and based on how we kind of see this play out. Because I don't know. It's been a long time since I've done any like SOX 404 work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I was to date myself. It was uh, like I was working off audit standard two at the time, and I think we're probably at six now. But anyway, back then, we're we're kind of trying to define what key controls or financial reporting means. It actually looked very similar to this what we're seeing right now for cyber. And the issue that we went through is saying, okay, let's document all the controls that we have within the the company. And if you're only talking IT controls either IT general controls or, or application level controls, you go through the exercise of saying, okay, what's material, right? And you define your materiality threshold. And by Sarbanes-Oxley standards, if a control was not followed or a control was, circ was circumvented, 
what would be the financial impact of that? And is it in material or non-material terms? And usually that materiality was a number that was a material percentage to either the income statement or the balance sheet or something that was significant enough that if that control was circumvented and the financial statements had to be restated, that was deemed to be material, right? If that, that makes sense. And so what ended up happening is that, you know, you kind of uh, go through that exercise, you look at all the controls that are significant and material that we're saying if they were circumvented, they would cause a material misstatement and force a restatement of the financial statements of the company. And therefore, those controls became your key controls over financial reporting. And when you look back in the most general sense of the security controls that cause materiality thresholds, questions always came back to identity and access management is one, right? Simply being if the identity structure, um, the access controls weren't strong enough and someone could, you know, misstate or game your financial systems, that's a problem, right? So identity and access management has always been a big one. And then the second one is incident response because it's based on your ability to respond to incidents. It could create um, a situation where you need to have a kind of like a legal retainer, right? And list that as, mm -hmm. as a liability on your financial statements, which based on the incident could be fairly material. The issue that I think exists in the, the cyberspace here, and especially for some of these bigger companies is we see breaches occur, right? But for some of these larger companies, you know, let's say they pay out, you know, $25 million, right? Which would be a sizable breach. $25 million against a $10 billion company or a $100 billion company is not considered material as far as financial statements go. So in, in that case, under these guidance from the SEC, this would be a non-material non event. And like your description that you gave about if cost of prevention is more or less than, you know, like the, the impact factoring the likelihood, you use that as a, as a measure too. In my opinion, most most of the cyber events that we've seen would not be considered material because you know what? You can't show that there's been loss and you pay for credit reporting for some of your impacted users. People already have, you know, data loss fatigue. They roll on, business moves on as normal, and there's really a minimal loss other than paying for credit monitoring. Most board of directors would accept that financial risk as long as it didn't do any brand harm or you know, cause any brand reputation issues, push forward, keep selling more, keep growing the business. This really just becomes a cost of doing business really. All day long, right? If, if we look back, I, I love that analysis. If we look back at Target, right? One of the famous breaches of all time, right? Big data breach back when they were kind of rare and people were expected to be, you know, castigated more for them. Uh, they experienced like a 10% stock drop immediately after. But by the end of the same year, I think at the end of a 12-month period, if I remember correctly, this would have been like whatever the hell it was, 2011, 15, something like that. They had actually had their highest rate in stock price growth in over five years, right? So if the SEC is ruling on materiality as a function of equity value in a public market, not so important, right? And I think if I do the same math and find out if a ransomware attack against a uh, a larger company, right? To your point, they pay a certain amount, they clean up a certain amount, and we're back in business. That's pretty good. I think the, and I think it makes it less material. And so, you know, I think that there is a question of what this will mean over the course of time and will the benefit in any way drive enough positive value 
uh, to make up for how much of a hassle this could turn out to be. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. And as we're looking at closing out Washington week, right, as we've gone from private company recommendations by the president to secure everything right now, like right now, and then to the <laughs> public sector and the Department of, Department of Defense and National Security Networks, where the recommendation was, um, please secure all these individual things. Oh, and when you're done with that, please find out all the things you have to secure. Uh, I'd encourage our audience to go back to listen to episodes one and two to find out what all that's all about. And now we're talking about the public market's treatment of the internal sort of private structure, right, of publicly traded companies, right? And this is that, that ultimate overlap, right, where public policy and private interest, you know, join themselves. And I think it's really interesting the path that we're seeing the SEC go down here where they're trying to mandate the outcomes of sort of managerial architecture and reporting. And we still have yet to have anyone in any of those three documents make meaningful recommendations slash requirements for how people are supposed to comply, whether whether how and how they are rewarded for complying with the president's mandate uh, in the first release we spoke of, um, the way that the, the national security infrastructure is incented to improve itself, the way it was discussed in the second. And in this, um, the, the ways in which they expect companies to take the benefit of having this higher level of security awareness at the board level, because none of that is there. It's all this recommendation. It is all make sure it's material. It's all, you know, hopeful prognostication. It's all, for me, it is a lot of virtue signaling. And that's really what we're looking at. Yeah, I, I think that's a good one to to kind of wrap on. I, I would agree with all that. I really applaud these agencies and organizations trying to shine shine a light on this. I I think that the intent seems like it comes from a super good spot, and I'm I'm, okay. I'm happy to see it. I speculate. My forecast is this is actually going to be harmful to what we're already trying to do from from a cybersecurity standpoint. Because seems to me looking at trying to read the the tea leaves here is in the absence of having anything tangible and like significant that you can measure in in absolute terms it's basically going to come into that financial exercise that you talked about earlier and you know in most cases the fiscal calculus isn't going to work out and you're going to you know company leadership is going to be forced with is it better that i serve my shareholders and maximize their return or is it better that I try to satisfy this singular cyber risk? And I can tell you how that's going to end up every single time. And in the course of going through that, you know, that fiscal calculus exercise of, you know, prevention versus, you know, cost and likelihood, I think what we're going to find is the, the math isn't going to add up and it's going to be you know, cyber risks are going to be looked at from a very binary standpoint of either it fits in the calculus or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you can go back to your cube and we'll check in with you next quarter or next year. <laughs> you know, like and at that point it's uh it's lost a lot of its art, you know, and a, a lot of the things that we've built up over the last year, like the the political capital and goodwill is is all gone. So I don't know. I'm positive about it. Who knows? I've been wrong before. <laughs> <laughs> positive on the visibility. Yeah, we are. I would well, I would say I am skeptical about the detailed implementation. Yeah, exactly. But hopeful. I like it. Always hopeful. <laughs> All right, Jack. It's been fun. Mm -hmm. If any of our listeners need help with 
cybersecurity, need help in interpreting what materiality means, <laughs> reach us at pwn.newharborsecurity.com and uh, get you next time.